Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Stuart Wright, the Britflix podcast host, and I'm cutting in again just to let you know this is the continuation of the Fright Fest preview series. And again, breaking with the tradition of the usual long form QA, this is six bite sized, spoiler free introductions to films that are playing. You will hear about Do Not Disturb, The Harbinger, Mean Spirited, The Once and Future Smash plus Endzone 2, The Ones They Didn't Burn, and Stalker. Everyone is asked the same questions. Tell us who they are, what their role is on the film, a brief synopsis about the film, the kernel of the idea that led to the film that you're seeing today, their favourite memory from the shoot, a spoiler-free insight into the scene they're looking forward to most seeing with an audience at Fright Fest. And then finally, they're offering their tips to any rookie attendees to Fright Fest or simply saying they are rookie attendees and they're really looking forward to attending. Over to the filmmakers. Uh, My name is John Ainsley and I'm the writer, director and also composer uh, on Do Not Disturb. Uh, Do Not Disturb is about a couple who head to Miami for their honeymoon. And while there, they decide to take some peyote to strengthen their marriage bonds. And um, they're given a rare strand that develop, that makes them develop a hunger for human flesh. And they, uh, everything goes unhinged from there. And uh, they basically consummate the marriage through uh, eating each other. Um, in the end, I mean, it's really about Chloe, the lead character, who is learning to, um, to not trust her partner. And uh, she eats her way out of a bad relationship. I was at the Canadian Film Center, bored out of my mind in some type of a uh, panel that I don't even remember. And for whatever reason, I wrote down the words, um, couple develops cannibal sex fetish on honeymoon. And uh, from there, um, I turned it into Do Not Disturb. And the first draft was, uh, uh, the first draft was um, a little different, but mostly the same. It was bigger. It was more expensive, and uh, and it was uh, sort of homage to uh, Freaks, um, the old nineteen thirties film. And uh, um, but from there, I watched a film called uh, Bug by William Friedkin, and that intense relationship drama uh, really inspired me to want to make a movie that was condensed in a hotel room um, between these two people and just build, use the intensity of the relationship rather than the plot to move the story forward. And uh, that became Do Not Disturb. Yeah, Bug. Bug is one of my favorite films. That film, it has everything. Because it's a solid drama, but then at the end, there's it's it's a solid horror film. So 
I, I like mixing and matching. Um, since Blockbuster went into business, there's no point in making a movie that fits in a, an aisle. You can go everywhere you want now. I think it's a cross. I mean, when we were, when I was pitching it, I pitched it as Spring Bakers meets Bug. Um, however, unfortunately, in our industry, no one had ever heard of Bug, um, which so I've made a lot of people watch Bug because I think Will Friedkin's Bug is probably one of the better movies ever made. Um, and Michael Shannon and Ashley Judd, it's two of the better performances um, in cinema history. Um, but that one combined with uh, Claire Denise's um, Trouble Every Day, which I think is a really interesting film. Um, obviously, I mean, it's a couple who are on vacation <laughs> and there's the cannibal sex fetish, uh, towards the, in the, in the second act. But, uh, that was another big film. And then I watched Bad Batch and I thought like Bad Batch for me was a really interesting film because it kind of came not out of nowhere, but it just was so original and so fresh and the colors were so bright and saturated and, and it stood out for me in terms of performance and an interesting way of telling stories. I think it was a very original film. Uh, I guess that's a lot of, it's funny because in some terms, I've forgotten the entire shoot because uh, we sat, it was a long edit process. So we, we lived with the film for a long time. And then uh, the way it turned out, I ended up being the composer on the film as well. So I lived and breathed this film for a good six to eight months and nothing else, as my children will tell you. Um, so, but I mean, as far as favorite memory during the shoot was probably just working with Kim. Um, it was an amazing collaboration. Um, after every take, just going over and talking to her, um, we never really said much. It was just kind of, how do you feel? And if it felt good, we'd stop and move on. And if it didn't feel good, we'd do another take. And it was, it was a great working relationship and a great collaboration, um, with her, with Scott. It was a great little unit of people that we had um, on set. And that's, I, I love being on set. So when it's working, it's, it's amazing. And when it's not working, it's still good. So I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but there was just a lot going on because Wayne, I mean, Wayne in the one scene, Wayne is having his little private moment. Um, that's kind of a fun moment uh, with, uh, with, with his wife. Um, and then Jack and Chloe are working on their sort of accumulation of the relationship. And then in the other one, Kim is having a conversation with her shadow, uh, while Wendy and, uh, and, um, Jack do their thing. Um, so I don't, it was fun to balance them back and forth and shooting the shadow was kind of fun and I'm surprised it worked. Um, that was one of those things I wrote that I just thought this isn't going to be able to be achieved on our budget and our schedule, but, uh, Scott McIntyre, the, uh, DP and I, he figured it out and it worked just great. I would tell rookie attendees to eat free as often as possible. Um, because it's the only place that young aspiring filmmakers get to eat free, um, outside of being home. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, just go out and talk to as many people as you can. It depends on the festival, but I mean, you could go to the, a lot of festivals have a little sort of common meeting ground and you can sit down and just start talking to the person next to you and you never know where that will uh, lead. My name is Andy Mitten and I'm the writer-director of The Harbinger. 
The Harbinger follows a young woman who has to leave her family quarantine in early 2020 to go help a friend in New York City who's suffering from a terrible bout of nightmares that are going on increasingly long that she's unable to wake up from. And our heroine discovers too late that these nightmares, like a lot of things in our world, are contagious, as is the demon behind them. The initial kernel of the idea for the Harbinger came from a bad bout of nightmares I was personally having in uh, in March of 2020, specifically into April. We were all having like the lived nightmare, but I was having the actual experience at night where uh, I, I the, the, they were getting worse and worse. I couldn't wake up. I began to dread going to sleep. And I'm not usually a nightmare guy. Um, and I knew that it was being fueled by our collective dread and everything else. So I figured, yeah, I make horror movies. I'll try and write these nightmares away because I've been interested in working in nightmares and dreams for a long time. Um, and I was interested in also the 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 way our our usual mortal mortal fears in the world had grown into some something worse. That there there are worse fates than dying. There's dying alone. There's dying, you know, uh, without your life being honored. There's being forgotten. Uh, so I tried to take that and and weave together this this machine of a story that would address that, but would also satisfy my my hunger as a as just a horror fan um, to deliver the goods to to the community. The main influences on the Harbinger, I'm going to call it a three part. Let's say it's Nightmare on Elm Street by way of Jacob's Ladder with a dash of Candyman. Uh, one of my favorite memories from the shoot happened in our second week. Um, and it was a long dolly shot on uh, one of our main actresses, Emily Davis. And she's in an apartment and she's describing to her friend the, the, the details of her nightmare. And that's our first sort of uh, way into what's going on. And, and we're building dread. And she had a big, long chunk of text. And we had a really slow careful dolly push, which is deceptively difficult. Um, and it was just one of those nights where it, we, we got this amazing take. It was a beautiful focus pull. The set looked great. The lights looked great. Emily just brought it. And when I called cut, there was this feeling in the room where we all looked around at each other and, and we kind of knew what we had. Um, it just for the film and, and for each other and for our collaborations, uh, it, it was one of those special silent moments that you build on that take you through the rest of the shoot. There's a lot of moments I'm looking forward to seeing with an audience, many of them the horror type, and I'm not even going to play with spoiling that. So I'll go to another one. I'll say the, the other moment I'm really interested in seeing with people um, is an early moment where our two main characters reunite after a long time apart and they make the decision to unmask, they make the decision to, to come together. And there's this sort of catharsis in it that I, I felt in the what audience I've seen it with so far. Um, that is special. I think even for the audience members who were uh, reluctant to go into something that had any, anything to do with what we've all been going through. Um, I felt this positive charge in the room and this, exhale of something that really needed to be let go. And it was, it was very cool. My number one tip for rookie film festival attendees, and I am a rookie to Fright Fest as a physical attendee. So I'll tell you what I'm afraid of. I 
I'm one of those directors who, um, when I'm not on my set, I suffer from social anxiety and I'm a shy person in my life. And what I've learned is you have to throw that completely out the window, dive into the festival, you know, drink just enough of whatever it takes to make you let go of, <laughs> of your tension and, and get to know people, talk to people, be ready to talk about the next thing you want to do and, uh, and, and just dare yourself to get out there. Cause when you do, you're going to be reminded of how warm and welcoming this community really is. Hello everyone. My name is Jeff Ryan. I am one of the writers and the director of the horror comedy Mean Spirited. Mean Spirited is about a failed vlogger who tries to bury the hatchet with an old friend who's possessed by a demon. And it's kind of a satire on YouTube and vlogumentary is what we call it, but it's essentially a trip to the Poconos Mountains in Pennsylvania where uh, a vlogger comes face to face with his famous ex-friend who is now possessed by a demon, and it's kind of a run for survival as all his friends become demons. The initial kernel of the idea for this movie came from actually a trip I went on to the Poconos Mountains with my friends for actually my bachelor party before I got married. And we went cliff jumping off a waterfall. We explored these abandoned hotels. And I grew up also reading a magazine called Weird New Jersey, which was essentially a magazine in New Jersey in the U.S. where they they kind of document abandoned buildings, abandoned uh, like hospitals or scary places. And we would always just travel to these places. And I kind of just pulled a bunch of those ideas for the initial draft. And it was a big mess, but I did it in seven days. And then I sent it to Joe Adams, who is my writing partner on this. And He's brilliant. And he's like, hey, this is like a bunch of trash, but there's like a good kernel of an idea here. And then we spent the next six months rewriting it together and kind of making it into this crazy comedy that we we have now. And we're, we're super thrilled with it. We're really happy with how it came together. I would say a good comp or comparable movie to this film is Creep. A lot of people say it's very similar to Creep and Creep 2. Uh, the Mark Duplass movie, which is a brilliant movie, and we're thrilled to be remotely compared to that. And then a few people recently have said that it's very similar to a movie that is actually at Fright Fest as well called Deadstream, which premiered at South By, which I'm really excited to see. I don't think I get to see it at Fright Fest, but shout out to their team because I think it's kind of in the same vein. And uh, I hear that movie's awesome, and I'm really grateful to kind of be in conversation with that film. A favorite memory of the shoot would be. Uh, we have a few scenes at a waterfall, which the film takes place in like the late summer, but we filmed in October and in the Poconos Mountains, it was very cold. So we had this idea to film this, you know, stunt scene at a waterfall where someone kind of gets thrown off a cliff. So we had this 100 pound body double that we had to hike into the woods and it was just miserable for everyone. And it was probably the worst day on set and it probably made everyone hate us, but it was one of these like really exciting moments to kind of be out on location versus uh, with a bigger budget, obviously being able to do that on a stage. And I really loved it because I love waterfalls. It's like one of my like strange, weird things that and thunderstorms. And I, you know, I being one of the actors, I had to go in the water as well. And it was terribly cold and literally the worst 
with the worst feeling on our bodies. So it was miserable, but I really loved that. And then I would say the second memory, if I can add to, is we had this prank sequence in the movie that's really fun and it was just crazy. And we basically, um, we crack an egg into one of the actor's mouths and, you know, everyone was like, oh, this is like so gross. Like, I don't know if we should do this. And I was like, oh, that'll do it too. Like, I'll show you, like, it's not that bad. And like, so they did it with me first and it was horrible. It was so disgusting to get like a raw egg dropped in my mouth. And then uh, the actor, Will Martin, who did the actual stunt, did like an incredible job and somehow kept it together. And then as soon as we called the cut, like literally everyone was on the ground laughing. It was just uh, a really fun memory from set, honestly. This is the first time I'm actually going to sit in with a live audience that's not people I know. So I'm thrilled to watch the entire movie with people. And I'm just so grateful to have the opportunity to screen at a live theater again. I really missed that from the past few years. And I would say the most excited sequence that I am excited for, it's a weird way of saying it, is there's, we call it like the upload sequence. There's a, there's a part where the main character is trying to upload something to YouTube and things just go wrong. And it's like this intercutting sequence for eight minutes. And I truly love that sequence. I think it was something where, uh, not to go too into detail, but we, the film is a, a vlogumentary. So there's like an aspect of found footage and the actors have a prop camera. And we, we really tried hard to make that be a big part of this storytelling was to like use the camera as a piece of the storytelling. So, so much of this was similar to theater and aspects where we would have one angle and that may be a minute and a half take and it has to be continuous. You can't, we can't cut, we can't hide a cut in there. So it was a lot of rehearsing and trying things. And that whole sequence is a bunch of like one minute takes cut together. And I really love it because it just shows like how great of a job the actors and our entire crew just like worked so hard for all these sequences to work out. And uh, yeah, I'm really proud of it. So excited for people to watch that sequence. I would say my number one tip for anyone going to Fright Fest or any other festival for the first time is if you're a filmmaker, if you're there with a short or a feature, is to see other people's movies because it's it's hard to be a filmmaker, as anyone who does it knows. And it's also hard to be a programmer and a festival uh, goer or programmer. So the best thing you can do is support other movies because they'll return the favor. And the second thing I would say is just go to the festival because you you want to be there and you want to be involved and don't worry so much about, you know, career opportunities and things like that. I think the best thing you could do is make relationships with other filmmakers, with programmers and have a blast while you're doing it, honestly, because this is the best part of the movie making experience is you get to experience this with strangers. And I think some of my best collaborators over the years have come from film festivals and the friendships that you have from these film festivals can be like a lifelong friendship. and you support them, they support you. It is this mutual beneficial relationship that you can kind of capitalize on. So I think have fun, go to the festival, talk about your movie, and then also don't stress about talking about your movie. Have a blast. And yeah, if you're there, let me know because I would love to see your movie as well. My name is Michael J. Epstein, and I am the writer, uh, co-director with Sophia Cassiola and co-producer with Sophia and Neil Jones. Uh, the title of our film is The Once and Future Smash, and it's playing at Fright Fest as a double feature with the restoration of the film End Zone 2. The Once and Future Smash uh, tells the story of the two guys who played the cannibal football slasher named Smash Mouth, 
in the obscure 1970 film End Zone 2. And um, when there are plans for a, a reboot of the End Zone series, these two actors each think they're going to be the one to return to the role of Smash Mouth. And um, there's going to be a casting announcement made at the Mad Monster Party Horror Convention. And so we follow that story of the rivalry between these two guys. And uh, and the, we follow the casting announcement and the aftermath of that. And I can say it definitely does go to some some strange places. And, um, and the film is really meant to be a, a celebration of the historical importance and uh, influence of End Zone 2, even though it's not a well-known film, and a bit of an exploration of what has been going on with these two actors over the past 50 years, which is uh, honestly not a, not a whole lot since, since they did End Zone 2. Um, but we're really happy also that to accompany the Once in Future Smash, we're able to bring, uh, bring this long-awaited restoration of the original film. And it's the sequel. So the original End Zone, uh, the... A guy named J Jimmy Smazmoth plays on the high school football team. And he is uh, beaten up very badly by his teammates, so so badly that his jaw is broken and he can't eat. And so in the original, his mother helps him kill off uh, the teammates and she blends them up for him so that he can he can drink them kind of as a, a smoothie sort of thing. And so in End Zone 2, it's 15 years later and Smash Mouth has returned to get revenge on the, the, the cheerleaders who were involved in the original incident. So the initial idea for the film came from the fact that horror conventions uh, started getting really popular. And uh, I came across a lot of conversations on the Internet. I'm not a big convention person myself, but I came across a lot of, uh, across a lot of conversations on the Internet about how you have to make sure to get collectibles signed in a certain order because um, certain actors would refuse to sign something if it had been signed by another actor that they had a rivalry or some kind of disagreement with. And um, I thought that was a really interesting area to, to take a look at and a fun concept to explore in a movie. And um, as I was thinking about that and kind of just outlining and not no real plan to, you know, to make it, um, our, our friend Neil Jones uh, spontaneously was telling us a story about how he was having trouble booking a particular... Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. actor uh, from a popular horror franchise as a guest on his podcast. He, he does the Without Your Head podcast. And the actor was angry with him because he had previously booked another actor who had played the same role as they did in, this, in the same movie. And uh, there was, you know, a, a long kind of standing rivalry between the two of them. So when Neil was telling me ab about this struggle to, to kind of deal with the situation, uh, I told him about the concept of, of trying to tell a story about two actors like this. And he really liked the idea. And um, he was actually able to get us access to the Mad Monster uh, horror, Mad Monster Party Horror Convention. And that was where, you know, the story is set, where it takes place. And because Neil also has a long history of interviewing 
lots of horror community people, he was able to, to talk to his former guests and see if they wanted to come talk about Endzone uh, 2 in the movie. And so many of them were interested. We were able to get different perspectives on the, the original film. A good comparison for the ones in Future Smash would probably be any kind of documentary that um, incorporates surrealism, elements of the fantastic and metaphorical. We weren't really obsessed with just pure reality in it. We like to play around with it. And um, we think of that kind of in the realm of, of filmmakers like um, Penelope Spheris or Werner Herzog, or even like mockumentary films like uh, Christopher Guest. And um, in terms of the storytelling, because it's a story about a movie and uh, some actors as well, the actors from the movie, we really liked um, the, the movie that Lisa Downs made that celebrates the legacy and history of the, the movie Flash Gordon, and also simultaneously tells the story of Sam Jones, who played Flash in the, in the Flash Gordon movie. Um, and that's a movie called Life After Flash. And I think that was, I don't know if we intentionally did it, but I think, you know, as we were going through, we realized, oh, that's a really nice reference for kind of the structure, because you're telling two different stories. You're celebrating the film and looking at the, the kind of the experience of these actors. My favorite memory from the shoot was really, honestly, the, the whole opportunity to hang out with our friends, Bill Whedon and Michael St. Michaels, who play the, the who are the two leads in the, in the movie. And uh, we just spent, you know, several days with them and just getting to kind of work with them and create with them and watch them play off each other and, and uh, see their real life rivalry, you know, and, and, and see how it plays off in, in the film. Um, they're both wonderful performers. They're both really excellent people. We just really like them both. And uh, it was truly a pleasure to, to collaborate on this with them. And then we also just, you know, beyond that, we, it was so great to just get to sit down and meet and interview a, a whole bunch of horror icons and, and great people we, we really admire and love who who influenced our work. You know, who we we watch their films as as younger people and they, they really influenced our work. And um, just being able to share an affinity for Endzone 2 with them was really excellent. The moment I'm looking forward to seeing the most with an audience is when Bill and Michael really start to open up to each other because the film has a lot of strange and comedic elements and, and um, they're very closed off in a lot of ways. But I think we, we really managed to get them to a point where there's a surprising kind of vulnerability between the two of them. And there's kind of a truth that emerges, even if it's brief, because they, they kind of go back to being their, their gruff selves. But there's a moment where there's a vulnerability and truth. Um, and it's kind of, to me, it's very touching and it's also funny. And uh, I, I just want to see, I, I'm hoping audiences will experience it that same way. And I think it'll be really fun to be in a room and kind of see that turn with them. My number one tip for rookie attendees of Fright Fest is really just to have fun and not worry too much if you can't get into some specific screening. Uh, there are so many options. It's a, a huge program. And I would say it's almost always the case that when I go to any festival, I would leave raving about something that I didn't even know existed, didn't even intend to see, you know, when I was starting to go to the festival. And um, I think, you know, in that regard, it's really great to be open to trying out films, even if you think you're you're not going to like them, they're not quite your genre or quite your, your, your style. I think you'll be surprised if you go in and, and give different films a try. Um, I, I, I would trust that the festival programmers really know what they're doing and anything that they're putting before an audience there uh, they know that it's going to entertain or move at least some portion of their audience. And, and you, you know, you may be surprised by something you didn't know about in advance. So, hi, my name is Elise Finnerty, and I am the writer, director, and I also act in my film called The Ones You Didn't Burn. 
in the ones who didn't burn, we follow Nathan and Mira and uh, their estranged siblings returning to their family farm to settle the trust of the land after their father mysteriously commits suicide. So uh, once there, Nathan, he starts having these really vivid nightmares of like a long haired, beautiful, but albeit creepy woman crawling out of the ocean and uh, starts feeling the same dread that his father felt before his death. So as Nathan spirals back into the addiction that actually caused the friction with his sister, Mira begins to grow close to these women uh, who are working on the farm slash ancestors, wink, wink, that the family exploited hundreds of years ago. And as Nathan unravels further, so does this mystery about a centuries old secret regarding the land's original owners. I keep saying in other interviews and podcasts that it started with my access uh, to my friend's farmland. And that's definitely true. I mean, for a logistic point of view, but in terms of um, the first kernel or seed that really got this idea flowing, honestly, it started with this tarot card reading that my girlfriend did for me and our other girlfriend uh, out in the desert. Like we we took a road trip to the Grand Canyon at the very start of the pandemic. And we were all going through our own transitions. I mean, everyone was at that time, right? But uh, especially as women. And actually our third was pregnant. Our third friend was pregnant. She didn't even know. It was crazy. Um, but I guess this bond, or if you want to call it ceremony, really gave me clarity and power and something about that felt very magical, like very witchy. And I don't know, I think I summoned something that night because from there, it just, it just flowed out of me. But I would say that was, that was definitely the first tiny little kernel. So I've been saying uh, my biggest influence for this film was I mean, obviously The Witch, which was Robert Eggers' directorial debut. And I mean, it's completely different, especially he puts us directly in the period of witch trials, you know, 1600s. But I really loved how he just shows shows the protagonist's arc and her growth into a witch and ends up with her being the hero at the end and having this strength. Um, of course, she, you know, kills everyone, but but still. And, uh, and I guess another influence is obviously... Uh, Ari Aster, who's who's one of my favorite recent horror directors, uh, his film Midsummer, and obviously having a horror film that was shot mostly in daylight. I mean, it's genius and it's definitely inspiring for for my mood board. But again, he just showed a female protagonist at the end who overcomes her weaknesses and and she wins. I just love that. So those were two of my my strongest influences. So my favorite memory, there's so many memories from this shoot. I mean, all of it, it felt, the whole thing felt like a trippy fever dream in a good way. But uh, I would say my favorite memory is, is from this one night um, we were on the beach and we were, we had been there since the sun had come up and we were exhausted. It was, it was uh, a night shoot that night. And we just finished the dream sequence when Estelle who plays Scarlet, uh, she's crawling out of the water. Right. And there was one more shot that we needed to get. And we, we decided to just call it, or I decided to call it and just save some energy. I mean, that's part of the job of being a director is saving everyone from their, <laughs> from their demise. Um, but as I was starting to pack up Sam, who, who actually he plays Greg, but he was also one of my ADs 
and Brett, our DP, and Nico, our AC slash gaffer, they just pushed a little harder and they started setting up lights for that shot that I decided we're just going to cut. I see them kind of like getting everything ready and I'm just focused on getting out of there. And uh, they really wanted to set it up before they called me over. So they called me over and they just started like begging me to let Estelle stand in the frame. And I look over to Estelle, who's, you know, she's not just acting. Remember, she's like my producing partner. She's one of my, the other AD. Uh, She'd also like just given birth. She had her baby on set. That's a whole other thing. Um, And I look at her and she's like wrapped in a blanket, like shivering to the bone. And I just, absolutely not guys. Like, you know, Um, but she told me, she's like, I want to do it. I want to get in it. And I looked at her, I was like, I really, I don't think it's a good idea. And she just, she said, you got to trust me, really. I, I, I'm okay. I can do it. So, so she got in it and we got the shot. And it was just one of those moments that everyone worked together for the vision. And I don't know, that driving back to base that night, just like music blasting and feeling the satisfaction of making art with people that, you know, you love and you trust. And it's just the best. It's the best part of this whole thing, right? So that's my favorite. Now. It's so hard not to spoil anything, uh, especially because, you know, I really I can't wait to hear people's reactions. And that's that's my favorite part. But I would say uh, the full dream sequence at the end, you know, the film kind of uh, teases it throughout the movie. um, But it goes hard in the last 20 minutes and the score is just incredible. I mean, it gives me goosebumps every time. And and then there's this nice little gross tail end that usually gets a physical reaction. (laughs) from anyone I watch it with. I think you know what I'm talking about. So uh, that's going to be fun. That's going to be fun. Um, drink a lot. <laughs> Just kidding. No, don't drink too much. That's going to be me. But uh, I would say, honestly, just talking to as many people, meeting as many people as you can, filmmakers, obviously, um, whether you're in the industry or not, I would say that that's the beauty of festivals and seeing movies alongside of the people that like made them. Uh, I mean, that's really rare in all platforms of art. So I'll be trying to talk to as many people that want to talk to me, uh, come up to me, please. Um, I'll be nervous, but I would love to talk to anyone who wants to hear more about the film. So my name is Chris Watt, and I am a screenwriter of the new psychological thriller, Stalker. Stalker is a story of an actor named Rose Hepburn, played by Sophie Skelton, who finds herself trapped in an elevator that is broken down with a mysterious stranger, who turns out to be a character named Daniel Reed, played by Stuart Brennan. Uh, and as the story progresses, two things become clear. One, that the elevator is unstable, and as there's a storm approaching, it's showing signs that it could plummet to the ground. And two, perhaps worse than the elevator plummeting, it becomes very clear that Daniel may be more familiar with Rose than he first let on, which leads to tensions and suspense on every level. Well, the initial kernel, there's two elements to this, really. One, there was a time five years ago when I was in a shopping center in Manchester, and I stepped into an elevator and it went up about three floors. And between the second and the third floor, it jammed completely with me and four other people inside it, which you know, wasn't nearly as terrifying as being in a high rise as being 12 or 13 floors up, you know, you're only going to plummet maybe 
18 feet as opposed to hundreds of feet. So, you know, not the most terrifying experience of my life. And it only lasted about three or four minutes. But it never left my mind. It's the impression that it left with me of what would it be like if you were trapped hundreds of feet up inside this little box? And that starts ideas rolling as well, because you start to think, well, what, what, could you, what could you do with an idea like that? Well, maybe there's somebody else in there and maybe that somebody else has been has something unusual about them. And, you know, that's kind of an idea that I kept to one side. I kept it in my little book of uh, plots that I keep on my desk, my little notebook. Uh, and the second uh, element really is closer to home. It came about because I started writing this script when the first wave of the pandemic had hit. And we had nothing but time. We were all at home. And I thought to myself, the way films are going to be made, particularly in this country, um, and particularly in the independent sector, are about to shift fundamentally in big, big ways. And that's going to mean less cast, less crew, less locations, less sets, less of everything, really. And I thought to myself, well, I'm going to write something that would be relatively easy to produce and relatively simple to shoot. Not many people... And so I go to my little notebook and I start going through all my plots and all my ideas and it just gelled the idea of using the elevator. And I thought, right, well, I'll set this in an elevator, two characters, 90 minutes, boom. And that's that, that's it. And we'll be off and away. And of course, as these things often happen, you think to yourself, well, this is a nice, simple idea. It'll be nice and simple to get done. And then you have to suddenly think to yourself, well, what do I do? I've got to film 90 pages. I've got two characters in one location. So from the the kernel of the simplest of ideas, it sort of turns into this nightmare, almost as nightmarish as the the plot itself. There are a lot of influences when it comes to this. I'm a big fan of Danny Boyle when he's in thriller mode. Uh, And I think a film like Shallow Grave, which I still consider his best film, uh, the way he uses space and the way he uses a simple idea and manages to create something visceral and energetic from it is really something. The other film of his that I also found a huge influence was 127 Hours. Very different in terms of genre, but you've literally got a man pinned under a rock and it's possibly the most energetic film he has, he has ever made. And you start sort of dissecting those stories and think, well, how did he do that? And how do you make a 90 minute movie when you've, you've got nowhere to go? And of course you, you find the way through the sort of cinematic language of how to tell a story. And I think being a screenwriter is great in that respect because you can, you can use the cinematic language in a way. I mean, cinema is a a medium that you can use time and you can use perspective in a way that you can't use it in any other medium. So you can kind of go anywhere you want. So that was exciting. Um, Also, I'd say maybe, the, the more thriller aspects of the, the early Brian De Palma films, things like Blowout and things like uh, even Carrie, the way he sustains tension in relatively simple situations. I'm a big fan of De Palma. And I think in this country, particularly, we're very focused on the script, but scripts are often not visually inclined. They're more about the story. They're more about the plot. They don't tend to write in specifics in terms of visuals. But this this always felt to me like something that I, I did need to go a little bit more visceral with and a little bit more visual in terms of how I write it. So it kind of changed the way I was writing at that point. Um, and of course, Fincher's Panic Room, I think, is a, probably one of the biggest influences because you're taking, again, a very simple idea and finding a way to unpack it and unfold it and make it complicated. And you just take two characters trapped in this small room and then what, what have you got in that room? And how can they get their way out? And it, you, you find ways through uh, 
writing and rewriting and rewriting to uh, sort of create something exciting and thrilling out of it. Well, the storytelling challenges really were, as I'm saying, you talk about doing a single location movie. You have to then sit back and think to yourself, well, right, if I'm setting something in an elevator, what do I have in that elevator? What's going to be in there? There's going to be doors that move. There's maybe just going to be windows. There's going to be buttons. There's maybe just going to be a hatch or a camera, a fire extinguisher, who knows? And that's the first challenge. The, the, the second challenge is seeing whether or not you can actually sustain tension and suspense when you've just got a dialogue going on between two characters. In a lot of ways, you can, you can approach it almost like a stage play in that respect. But you also have to be very careful with that because the stage plays are, they're all on one lens when you see a play in the theater. You're only seeing it on one lens, whereas in cinema, you're seeing it in a whole different manner of perspectives. And I think that's where probably working with the director, Steve Johnson, came in handy. He came on board early once I'd done the first draft of the screenplay. And he and I worked very, very carefully together for months, just trying to go through my screenplay bit by bit, note by note, and pick it apart, pick apart the plot problems. Because when you write a screenplay, you're so in it, you never notice the problems until you give it to a fresh pair of eyes. That's why I never understand a writer who is sort of hesitant to take notes. Uh, I think notes are essential because you just don't see the plot, the plot issues or the fact that a character says or does something that doesn't make any sense. And he's very good at, I, I like to say that he's very good at taking the thing that I've put together, breaking it apart and then giving it back to me to then put back together. And I think that that's kind of how we found a rhythm in how to work. And we've been, we've been working that way ever since. And, um, I think really that was the biggest challenge was seeing, can you sustain uh, tension and suspense for that long? And uh, I like to think we've done a pretty good job. Uh, well, <laughs> it's quite funny, this. Um, I'm not going to give any particular plot points or anything like that. There is one key line that I have written in this screenplay that uh, I cannot wait to see with an audience. I cannot repeat it here. I'm not sure there's anywhere I could repeat it, but there is one key line in this film that when it lands, I'll be very interested to see what the reaction is to what that character says. It's, it's, uh, it's going to be memorable, let's just say that. Well, that's an interesting one for me as well, because this is my, one, this is my first time at Fright Fest, and I actually consider myself a bit of a rookie as well when it comes to festivals. I've attended festivals as a viewer, uh, never with one of my own films there. This is going to be my first world premiere. Uh, my first uh, sort of one of these, hopefully the first of many. That would be nice. But uh, I would say just from a film viewer perspective, when it comes to festivals, it's just about kind of having a good time, really. And don't panic too much and be open to everything that you see as well. Because, you know, nobody, I think, sets out to make a bad film. And you have to be open. You have to be willing to just take anything on on face value really and I often I find when I attend a festival I go and see something that I have never heard of have no clue what it's about nine times out of ten I'm surprised and end up finding a film that I really loved and enjoyed and what I love about Fright Fest is it's just the perfect audience for this film for Stalker in particular it's there's something about horror and thriller audiences they are they're nowhere near as mean-spirited as some fan bases are they're far more agreeable they're far more open because they've seen all the wild stuff. So it's going to be really interesting to see this play with an audience like that. And so brings us to the end of Fright Fest Preview Part 
two. You heard from the filmmaker behind Do Not Disturb, The Harbinger, Mean Spirited, The Once and Future Smash, Double Bill with Endzone 2, The Ones They Didn't Burn, and Stalker. There'll be a part three with even more filmmakers introducing you to their films. Subscribe to Britflix wherever you get your podcast, and if you have time, please rate and review. Thank you. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.